And I want to share in a few moments a couple of thoughts that the Lord has laid in my heart as a prelude to this word. It's a little different today. I'm, I'm probably headed to a series soon that God's been dealing with me about, but I was not prepared to go that direction. And there's something that's been stimulated in my heart for the last couple of weeks that I just felt like I know the Lord is, is leading me this direction. It doesn't mean that I always have great clarity and I have to, to just continue to wait before the Lord. But it's James chapter 4. It's three verses. It's the eighth verse. And if you would stand in honor of the reading of Scripture today. It's a Scripture that if you... If you don't look at this in the right angle, you'll perceive it as negative initially, and that's wrong. But here in the eighth verse, James is, is exhorting. And he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. How many of you know that's a principle alone right there on itself? If you'll draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's this ninth verse, though, that begins to capture the attention and the, uh, uh, that's been on my heart recently. It says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. And if you don't understand the context to a degree from which that's written and a principle that's much greater than one verse of Scripture, then there, there's a negative connotation to this. But, but it's not. There's a divine principle that's woven to being afflicted and mourning and weeping. He says, turn your laughter, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. For if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He will lift you up. Amen? Now, when we were in Israel, by the way, Dr. Brassville and Destiny are about to go back in February. Um, but when we were there, we saw so many sites, and there was one particular site that stood out on the edge of Mount Olives where Jesus himself descended multiple times, but one, one of which certainly stands out above all others. And there is a sanctuary that's been built there to this day. Um, I think it was, it's not that old of a sanctuary. Um, it doesn't trace all the way back to the first century. I think they, the preservation of the site traces all the way back, but the sanctuary is not. And it's, the name of it is in Latin, so I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it today, but it's called the, the Church of the Teardrop. It's kind of what, or the Teardrop Church. It, actually, the, the, the sanctuary is built in the shape of a, of a teardrop, and it's there that they've marked the place that they believe that when Jesus was descending the Mount of Olives, not the last time, but the most significant time, as he is left Bethany and he's going to the city of Jerusalem and he sees the city and he's overwhelmed with emotion. And he, and he, and he quotes and he, and he speaks a word as he says, you know, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have longed to have gathered you up like a mother hen. Y'all remember that? It's recorded in Luke's gospel. As a mother hen would gather the chicks under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the context of that passage begins with, And Jesus wept when he saw the city. And so again, there they have captured the essence of that spot by, by, by building this edifice, calling it the Teardrop Church. And 
I wanted to extract from that for a moment, just for a moment today, from my sermon context, very odd, and I'll share with you more in just a moment of why it's on my heart. But rather than the teardrop church, I want to preach today from this thought, the church with teardrops, the church with teardrops. Let's pray. Father, I humble myself on this stage today, just praying that God, as I've already confessed to the class, Sherry and I wove our faith together in agreement. I don't want to see preaching hindered today, God. I pray that it's, there's an easy flow of the context that you've laid on my heart this morning. Pray, God, today. What I have, what I have gleaned in my spirit, God, I pray that I'll have the ability. Your word said through the pen of Isaiah the prophet, you would give me the tongue of the learned, that I would have a word in season for he that is weary. Today, expound this thought, this thought and this principle. It's in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated today. Can I take a few minutes to just kind of speak to you very personally today? As a prelude to the doctrinal content of this passage of Scripture and certainly the more broader the more broader picture that we're going to look at in just a moment. Let me, let me share with you from a pastor's heart, someone that this is now my 18th year, I think it is, or 17th year of pastoring full-time, and I've been preaching since I was 16, so I'm one year away from my 30th year of preaching. And with this, you know, hopefully you grow and mature in your ability to communicate biblical principles. That's something you desire. Paul told Timothy, give yourself wholly to these things that your progress may be seen by all. Now, let me say this. It's, hard, it's more difficult. It grows more difficult to preach to the generation that we have in the earth today. It's more difficult. And I'll share with you the reason why. It's because of this. Salvation-based preaching or theology-based teaching is secondary in our culture to crisis-based or recovery-based teaching and preaching or life enhancement. We're the generation of the life coach. We're the generation of people, teach me how to live, teach me, right? And, and it's, it's one thing to say, well, let's just go to the epistle of Ephesians and let's go line upon line, precept upon precept. The Bible speaks of the Bereans being more noble than those from Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily whether or not these things were so. Today when we search the Scriptures, we have a very deep ulterior motive, and that is we want something in our lives that we are certainly seeing, you know, that we're measuring out, you know, what we can get from this vein. And so it takes, this, it takes a fine balance of not letting go of the salvation emphasis. See, in the days of some of the prince of preachers such as Charles Spurgeon, they asked Charles Spurgeon about his preaching style. He said, whatever text I choose, he said, I go and then I make a, I make a road line, to the, or I just make a, a direct line to the cross. So everything there that evolves from that preaching style is about salvation. It's about regeneration. It's about the need for repentance. But again, there's been a cultural shift in our, in our, that, that we live in today. And though, though you always, you never want to let go of that. You always want to have that blended and molded and folded into. Everything that we do is certainly in that context. But every Sunday, every Sunday we don't preach, you know, the, the, the cross in that sense. We always preach the effects of the cross, but I'm not taking you on that trail. 
because, again, there's diversity of things. Then theology-based, theology-based, just line upon line, precept upon precept. The response that people are looking for today in this vein is, Pastor, what about me? Here am I. I need purpose. I need direction. Thus, the need for the last two weeks that I've been giving you on Sunday mornings about how to find direction from God. It's important, isn't it? Because if you don't get direction from God, you're getting direction from someplace, right? And I would rather learn how to have direction from God and, and know that I'm walking in His path that He's laid out for me. So I'm just telling you from my standpoint how more difficult that it is because I, you can't never let go of the underlying principles of the effect of the blood of Jesus and the cross and preaching to what might be a few lost people scattered amongst the fellowship. Right? So that's important to maintain. And secondly, I want to see people rooted in doctrine and, and indoctrinated in the Word of God. Right? The Bible says that you must, be, you must continue in the faith, rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And I don't want to raise up a, a biblically illiterate church. Right? I want to raise up a group of men and women that are studious. You know, they study to show themselves approved unto God. Right? So, there, so do, are you understanding? It's a, so, so it's a fine balance. And then as a pastor to come here, uh, I have to let go of everything else that I'm going through personally to have a word from God. If you've never done that, if you've never been asked to preach or teach or speak publicly, and at the same time, there's a, you know, Paul said this in his own writings. He said, the weight of all the churches are coming upon me. You know, there's practical things. that Sometimes what I do as a pastor, sometimes it seems like 50% of what I do is facility management. It's a 25,000 square foot facility, a lot of resources to maintain it. From we got to get a new roof on after the ice. we got to build a wall in the back. We had to get speakers hung in the sanctuary. There's all kinds of things. And then my own personal family issues that we might have going on. And I'm going to make a confession today that, that just so that you'll know is that the thing I've been praying for the last two weeks about the peace of God in our heart, Sherry and I have put both, we have, we have, we're, we're stuck between two houses. And that's a difficult place to be in. It's a difficult place. And even right now while I'm preaching, one, the one house that we live in, the farmhouse, is being shown. And so, so then i got to somehow, come on, shake it all off and say, Oh God, I need a word for the people. I just want you to know it's not as easy as what you might think because I hadn't lived 40 days in the wilderness eating nothing but locusts and wild honey. Right? I'm still going to ball games with my children, planning for their future, choosing colleges or career choices, all those things. It's more complex to arrive here. And so sometimes it's easy because there's like this direct light from heaven and other times it's like a searching moment. I have to search and seek and find. And what I'm sharing with you today is born out of my own devotion. It's born out of the thoughts of my own, my own meditations. It's not, I didn't go to this word for a word for the church. I went to this word just for me, just to, uh, just to somehow to, to connect to a passage of scripture that I felt like was, was important to my life. And I think it's important in, in as, as a believer in Christ that we learn to humble ourselves before God. That we learn to subject ourselves to seasons in life where we, where we become uh, more, even I say this very respectfully, more repentive than we are on a regular basis. Not that we're trying to recreate regeneration. We know we're set in Christ and all those things. But the, the, the pattern of life that sometimes can skewer out of the way where we're just saying, God, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm walking in the path that you have for me. I want to humble myself, God. I want to be contrite. I want to be broken. There's a word that you can 
Google search and you'll get no response. Brokenness. It doesn't exist. It's like the Shekinah. There's no word for it, but we experience it. We know what brokenness is. There's no word for it in the dictionary, but we know it's about being broken in heart, humble before God, not being arrogant, not being proud, not walking and, and being neglected of our, of our faith, but being humble before the Lord. Having a season of deep humility and crying out to God. And I think that's what James is writing in this passage of Scripture when he uses this strong language. He says, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. And then let your, read it further with me. It said, and let your joy turn to heaviness. I've contemplated for just a moment in this thought for just a moment, our human emotions often evoke the need for the occasional season or moment of mournful travail. The need is, it echoes in our spirit, a, 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 a weeping that we see in a spiritual context, not in a depressive context, but a, a, a weeping in light of spiritual truths that will produce an inward cleansing of the soul. That we are washed in humility and we're cleansed as we weep. I did just a little bit of study on the context of tears. Let me share with you for just a moment today. Uh, there's been a, a little bit of a shift in our culture. And that, you know, previously there are times when, when men that wept that were not looked upon with esteem in our culture. And now we're seeing a little bit shift and there's a little bit greater of respect for, for men. And we know typically women weep more than, than men. Studies show that a woman will weep 47 times in the course of a year. That was before the Lifetime channel came along, and now it's much higher, the Hallmark channel. But a man would weep seven times, seven times in the course of a year. But scientists have studied your teardrops. Did you know that? Science has studied your teardrops, and they've discovered that there is a distinction between the natural irritation of the eye, the lubrication of the eye that can be irritated by the cutting of an onion. I'm the onion cutter at my house. Whenever we're cooking, most of the time, I get to cut the, the onions, the great privilege of cutting the onions. And how many of you have ever, you know, experienced that natural irritation? Well, science has studied the, 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 the lubricant that's coming out at the irritation of the eye that's flooding it to protect it from debris or from the irritation of, uh, the, such as the smell of the onion, uh, to the tear that comes at times of emotional travail. And they've discovered there, there are different compounds that are being released in your tear when you're actually travailing, when there's actually crying and weeping, sincerity that's born of emotion. And as they have studied it and are studying it deeper, one theory, now some argue against the point, but as they do their statistics and as they have studied, 89% of people that weep or cry, when they do so, they then feel better because they've discovered that the release of those compounds are actually releasing some of that chemical buildup that's been in your body that's been created by stress. And it actually can produce a healing in you if you're willing to just, come on, and just let it go. Come on, somebody, and just let it out. Isn't that amazing that our God designed us with an outlet? An outlet that says, I don't have to live with this stress. If I'll just learn to humble myself before God and know that there may be a season in my life when it's not always about joy, but it's about a mournful cry unto God and to say, God, I'm seeking you even with tears. David wrote in the Psalms, he said, my tears have been my meat all the day long. David said in another place, I've watered my bed with tears. And I know there are times when you've gone through a season like that in your life and you thought something was wrong. 
I got news for you. Something was right. God was doing something in your life. He was working a change in you that would produce a healing in your life. Glory to God. It's a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And the writers are capturing it. I think it can be somehow connected. If For just a moment, I think we can connect it to a familiar passage briefly. Ecclesiastes 3 and 4. It's a familiar passage where Solomon is saying there's a time to every purpose. A time under heaven. Uh, there's a season. The fourth verse of the third chapter says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. I've discovered that we have taught you the Christian church of America. We have taught you how to laugh. We've taught you how to have joy. We've taught you how to dance in the Lord. But we've not taught you biblically how to mourn and to travail and to release certain anxieties that may be on the inside of you that God says can only be released when you humble yourself in the sovereign presence of God and tears flow freely, male or female, outside the church or inside the church, in the automobile or at the altar or when you get up in the morning or when you go to bed at night. Sometimes it can be an inward work of the Holy Spirit that's cleansing you by producing those tears. Jesus spoke about the generation to which he was ministering and he found a lot of fickleness. He said, he said, we have played music to you. Get your praise on, everybody. Take off that garment of praise and put on, or take off that heavy garment and put on that garment of praise and you wouldn't dance. He said, then we played the funeral dirge we mourned with you and we asked you to weep and you wouldn't weep. We have to be careful of becoming that generation. See, what I'm talking about today is not depressive tears. I'm talking about tears that may be associated with what, what we've learned in Scripture is godly sorrow. It's a season of travail that's connected to spiritual principles. 2 Corinthians 7, they're going to place this one on the screen here today. 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul is writing. Now this is born out of the context of repentance. And I'm telling you, repentance has the ability to wrench our heart and sometimes bring us to tears. Right? Repentance is the word repentance. It means, in essence, a, t- a change or a turning around. But it, I think the, the word conviction uh, in Scripture is a, a word that is associated with repentance. And it's a gripping and it's a squeezing. And it's, it's where the Holy Spirit convicts us in our heart. And, we, and we, try, we cry out and we travail to God. And Paul, is, as he's writing to the Corinthian church, in this particular passage, he's writing in their response to one particular individual and how they were handling this individual. There was gross immorality in the Corinthian church. He had written to them previously about how to deal with it. They weren't doing, at the time they weren't dealing with it properly and he wrote a very strong exhortation of how to deal with it and it picks up in the 8th verse of the 7th chapter of 2 Corinthians. I'd like to, to just read it very quickly today for it says, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle, the same epistle has made you sorry though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner. You had that inward wrenching in your heart. He said, after a godly manner. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't refer to tears, but he refers to sorrow. And I think sometimes in the, in the right vein, there is an application of that in our Christian experience today. He said that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So I'm not talking about depressive tears. I'm talking about tears that release cleansing in your life, a season of travail. 
veil. If you've ever been around an intercessor, somebody that truly has the spirit of intercession, somebody that can connect to someone else, they bear their other person's need like it was their own. Somebody else's need that might be so heavy that you and I that may not be true intercessors and we from afar agree with them. Yeah, I will agree with you in prayer. But a true intercessor joins their faith and they feel your pain. That's why Paul said we will laugh when you laugh and we will weep when you weep. And here he's writing in this passage of Scripture, the sorrow of the world will work death. But what I'm talking about will work a change in your life. He said, for this, behold, the 11th verse, this self-same thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, yea, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what revenge, and all these things you've approved yourself to be clear in this matter. And I understand that that context is a little bit more specific to addressing situations that we're in the church but I think there's still a principle that can be applied in our lives that godly sorrow associated with tears will produce inward cleansing in the life of a believer it will be the clearing of ourselves I love that phrase that Paul says it will be the clearing or even if I may connect to it the cleansing of ourselves I have a question for you today have you ever had that moment in your life where the Holy Spirit just seemed to overwhelm you to the point of tears and I'm not talking about just morning worship and I know there are different kinds of tears. There can be tears of joy and, and all kinds of things. But I'm just talking about that where the Holy Spirit just fell upon you. And you were just so moved emotionally. How I many you know God made us emotional creatures? He did. He made us emotional beings. Jesus himself, born in the flesh, was an emotional person. If you read, his, read about his life, Hebrew says that he offered up to God strong crying with tears. And he was heard and that he was a sign. And so today, let me tell you today, sometimes we can't even always articulate our prayer, but God captures our tears in a bottle. Sometimes the Bible tells us the story of Hannah who prayed and didn't even get the words out. She couldn't even articulate, but she wept at the door of the tabernacle because she had a vacant need in her life, and it was a vacant womb. She wanted a child, and she couldn't even utter the words, but with tears she wept. And the priest saw her but couldn't interpret it, but there was a God in heaven that could hear everything that was going on in her life, and he captured tears in a bottle and a year later she had a bouncing baby boy because her God heard her prayer. Come on somebody. That's why we encourage you that be emotional. Don't allow religion to rob you of being who God has called you to be. Allow his inward work of the Holy Spirit to do such an amazing thing in your life. I remember years ago, I was at Camp Formosa, 15 years old. I didn't only go to Camp Formosa one time. It's the General Baptist Camp just outside of Clinton. I'd gone there for just a little weekend retreat. I was just kind of new and awakening. And Terry Moat, now the pastor of the Howard General Baptist Church, was, pre was preaching to the youth that night. And I don't know why. I can't remember his sermon. I don't remember anything about it. It was by the firelight. I do know that. But all I remember is the Spirit of God came over my heart. And my eyes began to flood with tears. And I, and I began to weep uncontrollably for uh, almost two hours that night under that open field. I don't know what it was. I don't, there was no bright light. There was a, but it, I believe, if anything, it was just my heart being shaped for the call of God and learning to become sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit and learning to identify with other people in the kingdom. You've had those like seasons as well with the Holy Spirit. And so it's not always born of, of crisis. I mean, I understand tears and crisis. 
I'm going to highlight for a few today. Can we just, can, for a few minutes today, and I'll be mindful of the time. I've got one place I'm taking you to, one particular instance. But I want to just take you on a brief journey just for a few moments to see if you can identify with these people as we capture the essence of their emotion as it's been recorded in Scripture for a moment. Because i got one I'd like to close with today. But let me just trail a few just briefly today. I won't go into depth. I'll just glean from these. Jacob when Jacob heard that his son Joseph, his brothers came back with a torn coat, a coat of many colors that they had stained with the blood of a, of a goat that they had killed. You know the story. Joseph had been taken and sold into slavery by his brothers, betrayed by his brothers, and a lie was passed to Jacob that his son Joseph had died. The Bible says that he began to weep and sob uncontrollably. I don't know if maybe you had a moment like that in your life, the death, the death of a child something that anybody that's not experienced that cannot fathom. The, the over, he said, I will go down to my grave mourning. Later, in the very same book of Genesis, we find that there was a... How many know Joseph was still alive, though? And Joseph was later, many years later, possibly 13 years later, Joseph was um, reconciled with his brothers as he's now the prime minister of all of Egypt, and they are coming to search out the, for grain in the land. Y'all remember that story? It's recorded in Genesis 43 and in Genesis 42. And when Joseph sees his brothers, the ones that had betrayed him and sold him into slavery, and he understands the providential hand of God. Remember what he said, God has sent me in front of you that he might preserve a posterity or posterity for Israel, for all of Israel. And the Bible says that he began to weep and began to sob. He began to cry so violently that they, his voice was heard all through the palace of Pharaoh. The Bible says in Judges, this is one that I'd like to place on the Scripture, and this is something that I would just say, oh God, that we will ever have seasons like this in the church again. It's in Genesis chapter number 20, the 26th verse, and if we can put it on the screen for a moment, just read it with me. Then all the children of Israel and all the people went up and they came into the house of God and they wept and they sat there before the Lord and they fasted that day until evening and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. The condition of the church and the situation that they were dealing with was so travailing that the children of Israel knew the only place that they could gain the direction in their life was to humble themselves in the presence of God. If it, mean, if it meant weep, then weep as God moves on your heart. Judges 20. Nehemiah tells us the, the story that when Nehemiah heard the condition of the city of Jerusalem, he asked the question, How's, how are the people? How are the people living there? He heard of their plight and his heart breaks and he begins to weep. The scripture tells us that Ezra, when he found out that the people that had been restored to the land were living in sin by marrying outside of the covenant of Israel, the people, groups that they were not supposed to marry. The scripture says that Ezra just wept and he tore his clothes. He was so broken. Genesis 50 tells us that when Joseph heard about the death of his father, Jacob, that he would later go to him and fall on his face and there weep and sob on the face of his deceased father. Exodus 34 and 8 tells us that the children of Israel wept, wept for Moses for 30 days following his death. 1 Samuel chapter 20 one that's moved on my heart so many times when I've identified with this passage in Scripture, David and Jonathan weep in the field because they know they're not going to be able to stay together any longer. You remember that story. Have you ever had that moment where you had to say goodbye to somebody? And it was, such, it, it, God, it was still godly. The tears were of sorrow. They, they captured me in a plight several years ago. I was captured in this moment when we took Ashley to the campus of Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida, 
1,100 miles away. We had taken her previously to the campus of uh, UCA. No tear flowed down my cheek that day. I knew she was 40 minutes away. I could see her when I needed to see her. She could come home at any time. But we went to that that service that day at 2 o'clock. It's going to be the final day when we're going to, we were going to have to go back home to Arkansas. And of course, what they always do, they start putting pictures of your children on the screen. And they start putting pictures of small children and then moms and dads and all of this. And when that image hit the screen, something hit my heart that unlocked a water fountain inside of me. And I found myself trailing all the way back till I was holding my baby girl when she was that big. She wasn't this big in that my mind at that time. She was this big. And I remember I had the psalms that we were singing in, 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 um, at MacArthur in those days when we would sing that song that, that no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And all those that rise up against us, that they shall run on the city. They shall run on the wall. You remember, I can't even remember the words, but I, that, Sherry and, and the girls had to take me to the, back to the motel and they had to leave me in the room. And for two hours, I sat in the rocking chair and it was there that I was holding my baby girl for one more time as I wept over her and the call of God in her life. But I tell you, it produced a cleansing in me and it gave me the strength to that when I was like the scripture says that when they wept in 1 Samuel chapter 30, they wept till there was no more power to weep. And I reached that place where there were no more tears inside of me, but it produced a cleansing and a release. And I gained the courage. And the, the, when I actually said goodbye to her on the, on, the, on the pavement, the asphalt, she was weeping and I was not. Because the healing power of God had been released in my life and God had strengthened me for that moment to, to be like Abram and Jochebed. I could put her on the river Nile in the bulrush basket and trust her into the mighty hand of God. God can do miraculous things in your life when you're willing to allow him to do things. In our heart and life, David and Jonathan wept. The Bible tells us that David wept at the grave of Abner, who was a leader in Israel, and he was frustrated because Abner had died in a way that he shouldn't have died. He was murdered in essence, and David walked and he prayed and said, Abner, you died as a fool dies. Your hands were not fettered and your feet were not bound. You died as a fool dies. Second Samuel 12 tells us that David fasted and wept for his dying child, only for his child to pass into eternity. And then he cleansed himself and went into the house of God and worshiped. The scripture says in 2 Kings chapter 20, have you ever had a moment like this? Hezekiah wept over the thought of his own death. For the prophet Isaiah showed up at his door and said, I've heard from God and you're going to die and not live. And when Hezekiah was faced with his own mortality, are you hearing me today? He was faced with his own mortality. Tears flowed freely from his eyes that day and he prayed and asked God to intervene. Mark 16 tells us that the disciples of Jesus wept and mourned after his death on the cross. However, their sorrow would be turned to joy. John 11, Jesus wept outside of Bethany's burial chambers. Peter heard a sermon preached by a rooster. Isn't it amazing? That's why I know God can use me. Because he used a rooster to get to Peter. And when Peter heard that rooster crow the third time, his heart was wrenched inside. He made his own altar that day. Come on, somebody. And he wept bitter tears. And he sobbed himself back to repentance and back to the kingdom of God. One psalm that I put on the screen before I share with you the one that's very important to me because this is important. Did you know that in the studies they're saying that it's actually sometimes important that you induce, that you induce crying in your life? That, that, that scientists are studying today that the medicinal release can be so healthy in your life 
that you to a degree at times, especially if you struggle with your emotions. If you're someone that never wants to, anybody to think it's manly and you're masculine because you don't shed any tears, that it can be important to induce this. Psalm 137, verse 1. It's a scripture they're going to put on the screen. It says, For by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. There are some seasons in your life that when you just get alone, how many of you have ever had that? Even now, even now, you can get alone. And when that thought comes in your mind, come on, that the emotion of the hour becomes as real today as it was then. Come on, you, you're there. You're there. I, I, I can still, I, I, I try not to let myself go there very often, but I can remember standing beside my sister and my dad when that doctor looked at us that day and said, I'm going to be very frank with you. Your mother's dying and she won't live past the day. I can remember those words. I can sit down, like he said in the Psalms, and I can remember those moments and those same emotions that I felt that day are rekindled in my spirit. I'm not saying this for the purpose of falling into depression, but if I understand the biblical principle behind it, and I know that there are times that I need to release the pent-up emotion that I've got in my life, then you know what? What maybe the ladies knew all along, a good cry is healthy for you. Let me share with you in closing today. Daryl, join me on the platform. The one passage that's on my heart today, the one thing, that, an example, that I want to share with you, that how I led myself, felt led to this passage today. In the context of godly sorrow, it's a humbling of ourselves in God's sight. It's submission to Him and humility. It's brokenness. It's, it's repentance. It's, I'm not talking about unbelief today, and I'm not talking about doctrinal confusion. I'm just talking about the cleansing element of humility. Is that good today? Come on, the cleansing element of humility. There was a reason why the children of Israel used to throw ashes upon their head and sit in ash and rend their clothes. It was acts of humility. It was, a, it was some type of outward semblance to an inward work of God doing a work in our heart. We say things like that, rend our heart, not our garment, but I understand the principle. Simply the cleansing element of humility and a stream of tears. The Bible says that they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Is that right? They that sow in tears will reap in joy. A time of weeping, fasting, brokenness, humility, submission, and repentance. A clearing and a cleansing of ourselves. There's one passage that stands out in my mind today that I close with you. It's from the life of King David. Let me just establish this principle for you today. David was very emotional. When you read his writings in the Psalms and then you see his life that's been captured by the writer of First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles, you'll see that he was very emotional. He was a man. And this is why it's important for us men to especially to understand this because as far as I'm concerned, there's no, anybody more manly than David. Have you ever stood and looked at a nine-foot giant? Come on, and you got a slingshot in your hand? Come on, and he's girded in all this armor, and he's got courage, and he's bold, and he's full of faith and full of power, and, 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 and God is... So there's not anybody, even from a teenager, from, his, from the earliest of days, he, he was a, a, somebody that we would say that's a very masculine, biblical hero, if we can use those words. But let me share, share with you an experience in David's life, and it's important that we capture this. It's in 2 Samuel 15... There's only one verse that I'm going to actually share with you in just a moment, but I want to capture it. This is called the flight from Absalom for just a moment. The flight from Absalom. Let me just put you in the context. It's important that you capture this for just very briefly because the flight from Absalom is, is perhaps one of the most difficult things that David ever endured. 
Actually, the end result of it was is that Absalom himself was killed in battle. Absalom was David's, if I can use this term, we should not, but his favorite son because he was, a, he was of such a, a, a beautiful stature. I mean, they weighed his hair when they cut it. He could make money in our generation. He could make halos, Amber. They weighed his hair. He was gifted and talented. And, and David was so passionate about him and his life. And ultimately, the end of the story is, is that Joab, David's own right-hand army commander, because of Absalom's rebellion when he was on the mule and he got caught beneath the, the tree and his hair got caught in the oak and Joab found him there and pierced his heart with a spear. When David heard the word later, later when he heard about it, he again overwhelmed with emotion, weeps and cries. And he says, O Absalom, O Absalom, my son, would to God that I had died in thy stead. It's a very, it's a very tragic end to the life of Absalom. But that's not where I want to go today. Absalom's plight was created by David's failure. So many times we as parents, what we do influences the generation that's yet to come. Come on. David, on that fateful day when he, other kings had gone out to battle, you know the story, he remained back at Jerusalem. And to the top of the casement he went and he peered out and he saw a woman bathing who was very beautiful to look upon. We have to guard ourselves Sin does not just sin against us, but it sins against those that we're connected to. And you know the story. It was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of David's 30 mighty men of valor, is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter number 11. He inquires who it is, despite the fact that she's in a covenant relationship with one of his closest friends. He brings her back to the palace, and in a night of sensuality and sexuality, he commits adultery with her. And through that one singular act, she conceives child. You know that story. And ultimately, through the process, and I, most of you know that, and I don't have time to build it, but it's a tragic, tragic what David did. And he puts Uriah at the front of the battle, and Uriah is slain in battle. And the Bible says the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And Nathan goes to him, Nathan the prophet, who's praying and hears the voice of God. And, and he comes to David, and he reproves David. He says, what you've done is not right in the sight of God. And he said, as a result of the reproach that you brought upon Israel, you're going to have reproach and, dis and, 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 and division in your own house. First, the child conceived in iniquity will die. And then there will be contention amongst your own children. And he said, your neighbor is going to lay with your wives inside of this son. It was a strong prophetical word from the prophet. And we see it borne out, first with the death of the child. Secondly, David's son, Amnon, rapes his sister Tamar. Tamar is the sister of Absalom. And when Absalom finds out about it, he has hatred in his heart for Amnon. And he waits two whole years to catch the right moment where he can kill Amnon. And he brings all of the other brothers and sisters over to the house. It throws a special party, New Year's Eve party. David, let all of your kids come over. They, in a tragic moment, he has his own men, henchmen, catch Amnon in the corner, drives a spear through his heart and slays him. All the other kids scatter. Word get back to David. And David, all your kids have been slain at Absalom's house. David once again rends his clothes and begins to sob uncontrollably when finally they look coming up the hillside. He sees a, a group of people and it's all of his children minus two, Absalom and Amnon. Only Amnon has died in this tragedy. The story unfolds further. Then 
after Absalom is separated from the kingdom for several years, he's welcomed back. David brings him back, allows him to continue dealing with the grief, dealing with the travail. But Absalom begins to rebel in his heart against this David. Long story, I'm going very quickly just to get you to one point. And finally, David, uh, Absalom begins to think, you know what, I can do a better job of ruling the people than my father. And so he begins to win the hearts of all the people. He sits at the gate when people are coming in for wisdom and for direction. He says, oh, God. I just wish there was somebody here to hear your plight. The king, he's playing golf somewhere. He's at Camp David somewhere. I don't know. If I were only the king in the land, if I were only the king, I would be there for you. I would be on the throne of judgment. Our king is old and ready to retire, and I would be there. And he little by little stole the hearts until he felt like he had enough people to create a conspiracy and a rebellion. And in his rebellion, he gathers a host of people and they begin to mount up on horses and they're headed to Jerusalem. They're going to take the city and they're going to slay David. Word gets to David. Your son Absalom is coming with an army. You need to flee. That's the flight of David. It's 2 Samuel chapter number 15. And I don't know why my attention has been in this passage of Scripture for two weeks now, but I've got this image in my mind that I cannot get away from. For the Bible tells us that when he hears this, David then begins to gather his family and they get a course of action and a plan. Some are going to stay at the house and keep the house. Others are going to go ahead and flee. David then begins the journey from the old city of Zion to flee the city. And he begins to go down. He First he comes down the mountain. The Bible says from a ways off. He leaves the palace. So if those of you that have been there, we know, we don't know whether he went south initially first or immediately east, but he ultimately he crosses the Kidron Valley, which separates Mount of Olives from the city of Jerusalem. And oddly enough, he's going up the Mount of Olives. Oddly enough, it's so unique, it's a parallel in Scripture. Because the writer in 2 Samuel chapter 15 tells us plainly that as he ascends up to the Mount of Olives, the Bible says that he's weeping, sobbing. His head is covered. It's the 30th verse. His head is covered. His feet are bare. And he weeps as he goes. Oddly enough, as he's going up, he's foreshadowing uh, several hundred years later when the son of David would come down. And perhaps at the same place, perhaps at the same monumental place, the church of the teardrop, where Jesus would weep over the city, David is weeping as he is leaving the city. His heart is broken. He's concerned about his family, his children. He's concerned about Absalom and his hate. And, and, and he is so passionate about the city of Zion. And he does not know as he leaves if he will ever be even restored back to his place as a king. And so the Bible paints us that picture. Can you put that verse of Scripture on the screen? I just want you to read it. I preach this whole message today to bring you right to this place right here. I don't have a theological reason behind it. I don't have three points that's got to follow it. All I could say is that for the last two weeks when I have closed my eyes and I have prayed and I have searched my own devotions and I've been asking God for direction to speak to you, this verse of Scripture has echoed over and over and over in my mind. David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and he wept as he went up and he had his head covered and he went barefoot and all the people that was with him covered every man his head and they went up weeping as they went up. My mind over and over and I prayed and sought God in this place seeking God and I just over and over I say, God, my head is covered. My feet are bare. 
and I'm weeping as I go up. I don't know why that God would bring me to this passage other than to tell you God did bring David back and he did sit on the throne of Jerusalem, the throne of Israel again. But I don't know if he would have if he hadn't humbled himself in the sight of God, covering his head. He could have been arrogant. He could have rose up. He could have initiated warfare. He could have sent out spies to try to slay Absalom. But he vacated his place in humility, covering his head, bearing his feet, weeping as he went in humility before God. We've done a poor job in the church today. We've taught you how to have laughter. We've taught you how to dance and to rejoice. But we've not taught you how to have godly sorrow. Sometimes godly sorrow is the only thing that will bring you back to the place where you're desiring to be. Does that make sense today? Can we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed here at the close of this sermon today? I know not what time it is. I've expended all of my preparation right here to just bring you. It's 11.53 this morning. I'm sure I've preached akin to 45 minutes today. The church of the teardrop marks the place where Jesus himself descended into the Kidron Valley and up into the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps it's the same place where David is ascending up from the city of Jerusalem on the place of the Mount of Olives where he would weep himself. Head was covered, his feet were bare, his heart was broken. It was a time of travail. It was a time and a season of travail. Through that act of humility and his willingness to be emotional in the presence of God and in the presence of his family and in the presence of all the people, I believe that those, the expression of emotion revealed the sincerity of his heart and he humbled himself in the sight of God and God would eventually lift him up. I want you to know today, if you've been in a season of travail in your heart and life, if you've been in a season where tears have flowed so freely, then you could be right where God wants you to be as you're humbling yourself in His sight, knowing that as you do so, God is releasing a cleansing and a purging and a pruning in your heart because He's going to lift you up and bring you to a place of restoration. Is there anybody here today who would be honest with me and say, Pastor, I've been in that season of travail in my life today. I've been there. Can you just raise your hand? Flip it up today. I want you to be courageous. Thank you. 